It was a horrific and unwarranted attack, one that helped to sound the alarm in a colony and to indirectly boost the career of one of the signers of the Declaration. The Pennsylvania story is in many ways the story of America, played host to the Continental Congress, then host to the Constitutional Convention, two bodies, which wrote two great documents of American history and government here in the city, and no doubt more than a little influenced by this location, a city that was founded more than anything on principle. Oh, little business as well, but on principle, certainly. All men were equal before the eyes of God, the Quaker motto. And that fit well with the American ideal we know, all men are created equal. Pennsylvania was created when the king, Charles II, king restored after English Civil War, decided to pay back some favors and debts owed to William Penn Sr. He was an admiral in the Royal Navy who had been helpful to him in his restoration and subsequent naval battles with the Dutch. Opportunity came when Penn's son, who had converted to the Quaker religion, asked him to resolve the thorny problem of Quakers being persecuted in England by moving the Quakers to America, and he asked for land to do this. The king gave him a large land grant, 45,000 square miles. Penn first called the area New Wales, then Sylvania for the amount of woods there. King Charles changed the name to Pennsylvania in honor of the elder Penn. William Penn declared that in this colony, Pennsylvania, freedom of worship was to be absolute. Traditional rights of Englishmen were to be observed, free and fair trials by juries, an assembly of colonial representatives, which was easily dominated by the Quaker settlers. And the colony would have fair relations with the local Indians. But there's an issue when you carve out a new fantastic utopia in the woods. Why, there are people living there who may not be so happy that you have arrived. The Quakers were pacifists. But what if somebody does take force and decide to use it against you? Is resisting moral? Godlike? Violence? Answering violence? Is that all right? How can you just turn the other cheek as a whole colony? There are so many forces. Hostile Indians, faraway French forts, Spanish naval missions, rebellious Scots-Irish vigilantes, and even the other colonies who might encroach a bit on the land if you didn't have an army. A militia, a group of the male citizenry armed and able to patrol or fight, deterred this in every other colony in North America. And Penn, despite his pacifist leanings, was not completely against a militia and allowed for such a thing in his charter, certainly allowed for protection of the colony in some form. The Crown, for its part, insisted that Pennsylvania have one. Even if it wasn't a royal colony, if it was a proprietary colony owned by Penn and his Quakers, it would not do to have an English colony with no protection. Yet the Quaker population in Pennsylvania was adamantly against a militia. It would take a moderate politician to solve this political crisis. You learn in history about the French and Indian War, and if you learn a bit more about history, you can see how it really led to tensions between the British and American British about land rights and the role of government, what they could do, where they could go, and what amount of taxes they should pay. As King George's War between France and Britain in the 1740s broke out, the governor of Pennsylvania, who was in effect put in office by the proprietors, the Penn family, called again for a militia law. I shall return once more to beseech you, out of the sincerest affection for your interest, to act as undoubtedly will be expected of you by His Majesty for the security of the part of his dominions. Nah, not good enough, the Quaker-dominated legislature said. 
not so used to listening to kings. That argument wouldn't work. Their land would not be a pawn in the international wars of Britain. They wouldn't violate their religious codes to build forts. As for the sea coast, New Jersey would protect the province from attack by sea. The governor had argued that the Quakers had allowed for police protection against robbers. By that measure, they must permit a militia to be formed for protection against foreign enemies. The Quakers responded that there was a great difference between an invasion and a robbery, although it was joked in some of their press accounts that there was a close affinity between burglars and soldiers. The Speaker of the Assembly asked the governor to respect the honest religious convictions of the members. Now let's just take both sides of the argument here a bit. A militia of armed Pennsylvanians, yes, it was necessary, of course, for protection, but you could see where the Quakers were right that this could just become another army for Britain and encouragement of that nation to go to war since they had this army in reserve. How could a pacifist group just go along with this? They were trying to do something different. This was a noble experiment. They held out for a while, but King George's War created new trouble for Pennsylvania. During the spring and summer of 1747, Spanish and French privateers had begun to sail along the Atlantic coast just outside Delaware Bay. Coastal watchers informed the council that 100 French or Spanish privateers had attacked and robbed several isolated plantations in the Delaware River in Newcastle County. That's Delaware now, but then it was part of the Penn family's property. The governor returned. Now will you arm a militia group? Try this line. Wait a second. The assembly might be Quaker, but it must represent all the people of the province. As Protestants, it was their duty to defend their religion against Roman Catholicism. By refusing to arm, they encouraged their enemies to prey upon their weakness. An offensive war, sure, that may be subject to rejection on moral grounds, but not so a defensive war, the governor argued. Still no. First, the Quakers charged, in spite of the trouble, a militia would cause more trouble. Militia men were a godless and rowdy group. This was a problem for everyone. Enter into the scene a man who was, you might say, a community leader. He had been the leader of American Philosophical Society, a firefighting company. He was a Bostonian runaway who came to Philadelphia at age 17th, an extreme extrovert who immediately started community groups with other tradesmen. He now, at uh, just a little more than 40, had done what only sports figures can do today at that age. He's retired. He recently became free of the day-to-day work of his printing shop because he gave his foreman the business and took a percentage of the profits in a partnership that ensured that for two decades he'd have money coming in. Now, Ben Franklin was looking for a project, and he found it in this age-old problem of his home city. I determined, he wrote, to try what might be done by a voluntary association of the people. Indeed, Franklin's idea was a free voluntary militia. It would not compel citizens into military service. It would be a group of citizens who would form a league for the defense of the city and the province. Behind it was Franklin, the most forceful proponent. This had political benefits for the Quakers, who were among Franklin's business partners, clients, and good friends. Just because they were pacifists in principle didn't mean they loved voting down a militia for their defense every time and looking silly to everyone and angering the crown by their action. His plan saved the Quakers from being embarrassed by having to vote against a militia act again, which did always look silly. Even better, the plan permitted these friends who were members of the assembly to remain publicly opposed to a militia without the failure to act having any bad effect on the province's safety. Retired as a printer, 
he still controlled the Pennsylvania Gazette newspaper, and he could print a pamphlet or two which he, when he wanted to. He printed one called Plain Truth. In it, Franklin laid the groundwork for this voluntary association and the argument for a militia. He observed that Pennsylvania was the only colony that made no provision for defense against French invasion. He assumed that the flourishing city and greatly improving colony had available a pool consisting of at least 60,000 potential male militiamen, not even counting the friends or conscientious objectors. Franklin, using his newspaper, praised moderate Quakers. By moderate Quakers, Franklin met those who held that their doctrine was not absolutely against defensive war. To the others, Franklin appealed to security, but also to their sense of business. He pointed out, Pennsylvania was the only British colony that had no provision for defense. He warned that if Philadelphia remained unprotected, there could be a turning of the trades to ports that could be entered with less danger and capable of furnishing them with the same commodities. Look at New York, Boston, etc. Philadelphia's loss would be the other city's gain. Indeed, the only way to secure peace, Franklin argued, was to be prepared for war. Well, his arguments worked. The Voluntary Militia Association received overwhelming public support. The Germans in particular flocked to it. They had immigrated to America and Pennsylvania in particular in large numbers. They were strong fighters, rallied to the cause. But as a volunteer, how do you raise money to have a militia? You need arms. Well, they did it the way so many things were raised in early America, through a lottery. Franklin proposed a lottery to raise 3,000 pounds by selling 20,000 pounds in tickets and giving prizes of 17,000. Pretty good deal. Everybody wins a little. Cannon were purchased for Philadelphia and watch stations were well manned. Militia units appeared all over the province. By December 1747, Franklin's militia was ready to parade before the governor. About 600 strong, the militia marched in military pomp and circumstance and the first parade of military talent in this Quaker city. This was almost a win for everyone, but it was really a complex political situation that Franklin was playing in. See, the governor wanted the militia. He couldn't refuse a militia, but help from Ben Franklin was not the way he wanted it. Governor George Thomas, agent of the Pens, was no fan of Benjamin Franklin or his plan. The problem is this Franklin voluntary militia would not be subject to English law or authority, and it could, without violating the Mutiny Act or other parliamentary rules, refuse to carry out the governor's orders. He worked against Ben Franklin. It's my duty to observe to you, he complained to London, that Mr. Benjamin Franklin, who holds an office of profit under the General Post Office, is at the head of extraordinary measures taken by the Assembly, writes their messages, and directs their motions. Indeed, already at this time, though he was not yet a member of the militia in the late 1740s, Ben Franklin was a bit of a political boss, or at least a mover and a shaker. Look what Thomas Penn had to say. He didn't like the militia when he learned of it in the spring of 1748. This association is founded on a contempt to government and cannot end in anything but anarchy and confusion, he fumed to his council secretary. He saw the association as a military commonwealth, in opposition to the established government, its creation was little less than treason. But yet, Franklin had what Thomas Penn didn't, the support of the populace. Thomas Penn recognized that the successful organization of the association had shown Franklin to be a sort of tribute to the people who must be treated with regard. There were about 700 men in this volunteer militia, but Pennsylvania, despite trying, 
could still not build an official one, a well-funded one, funded by the colony. And, indeed, as the French and Indian War now broke out, Pennsylvania would see two shocking events that would put this decision in perspective. One was when the Army of uh, Virginia, this state, and its Colonel George Washington made up the bulk of support because the Pennsylvanians did not have an adequate militia, entered the woods along with British troops under General Braddock near Pittsburgh to teach the French a lesson about building forts on the American frontier. Almost none of them got out alive. 1,500 men were killed or captured. General Braddock was killed. 13 cannons, 400 horses lost. Luckily for American history, Colonel George Washington was able to escape. But the fear was palpable on the Pennsylvania frontier, even in the city of Philadelphia itself. Franklin now again wrote a dialogue in defense of an official Pennsylvania militia bill, not just a volunteer now, which he published in the Pennsylvania Gazette in 1755. He's now a member of the Assembly officially. This dialogue is interesting. He gave his characters the name X, Y, and Z, and it pretended to be a conversation on a front door between a few people. One wanted the militia, the other wasn't sure because he didn't think the militia bill was strong enough, and then the third wasn't sure because he was a Quaker and objected. He stated the cause for the Militia Act by defending the Quaker exemptions. First, he said their charter had granted the Quakers immunity from having to bear arms. This had been confirmed by earlier statutes. The Quakers and other conscientious objectors were good taxpayers and would most likely continue to pay taxes even when the proceeds were used for war. Militia volunteers were exempted from paying taxes or were permitted to serve in the militia in lieu of being taxed. There was no shortage of volunteers. Ben Franklin was striking a moderate course. This militia act that Pennsylvania created might not be to the delight of the crown and might not be like militias in other states where people can serve or not serve at their choice, was a moderate way of getting the goal of having Pennsylvania protected done. While this argument was being held, there was a random amount of violence on the frontier. The principal antagonists were the Delaware Indians, Susquehannocks, and the Shawnee, who had been successfully talked into attacks by the French. Enter into this another religious group, the Moravians. They were a peaceful German sect, unlike any others. They were not only pacifists, they actually went out into the woods and attempted to convert Indians. The Society of the United Brethren for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen, organized in August 1745, is the earliest missionary society in America. In any place they operated, they paid Indians or white people for whatever lands they took. In 1744, a school for the study of Indian languages was opened at their colony in Bethlehem. Bethlehem started as a Moravian settlement, a log house, where a star now shines every Christmas. Now it's the Bethlehem Hotel. The Moravians tried to build their religious utopia in a wild section of territory far from where Philadelphia city residents at the time would have been interested in. They expanded with missions up the Lehigh River into what is now Layton, Pennsylvania. And there, they formed the village of Nottinghutton, Cabins of Grace. They were peaceful people, but when France declared war on England, France's Native American allies attacked the settlement and killed all but four of the missionaries. This combined with the numerous attacks on the settlers and the frontier, this combined with the defeat of a British army by French and Indian units, all of this combined to instill fear in Philadelphia. By 1756, the governor sent out the militia to build forts. Well, who to put in charge for this mission? Why not Franklin? After all, 
One, he'd get rid of his good political opponent for some time, and if it was not a success, he could blame it on him. Also, Franklin probably was the most capable and had solicited the militia after all. So, Franklin went out into the woods. In 1756, Franklin commanded a regiment of Philadelphia militia as well as an artillery company. He went into the woods, into the frontier, and started building forts. Well, as a military man, Colonel Franklin's career did not always work out as some of the great American generals. We had not marched many miles, he wrote, before it began to rain, and it continued raining all day. There were no habitations on the road to shelter us until we arrived near night at the house of a German, where, and in his barn, we were all huddled together, as wet as water could make us. It was well we were not attacked in our march, for our arms were of the most ordinary sort, and our men could not keep the locks of their guns dry. The Indians are dexterous in contrivances for that purpose, which we had not. The next morning our fort was planned and marked out, the circumference measuring 455 feet, which would require as many palisades to be made, one with another, of a foot diameter each. Our axes, of which we had seventy, were immediately set to work to cut down trees, and our men being dexterous in the use of them, great dispatch was made. When they were set up, our carpenters built a platform of boards all around within six feet high for the men to stand on when to fire through the loopholes. We had one swivel gun, which we mounted on one of the angles, and fired as soon as it was fixed, to let the Indians know, if any were within hearing, that we had such pieces. Our fort was finished in a week. As Colonel Franklin observed his men, he couldn't help but note how he was thinking of new aspects of human nature, of the kind that might have been in his almanacs or other writings. This gave me the occasion to observe that when men are employed they are best contented, for on the days they worked they were good-natured and cheerful, and with the consciousness of having done a good day's work they spent the evening jollily. But on our idle days they were mutinous and quarrelsome, finding fault with the pork, the bread, etc., and were continually in bad humor. For resolving some part a great problem the colony had, how to defend itself without becoming a tool of Britain, for building forts on the frontier, and at least in that mission, being successful, Franklin became quite a popular man and a useful man in the politics of the province. Indeed, after 1756, when the politics would change and many of the Quakers who controlled would lose control, a new assembly would be elected. He and a young person named Joseph Galloway, a lawyer who had studied with his son, controlled the assembly and led the popular party that controlled the colony's politics up until the time of the Revolution. Even as Franklin moved to England to argue for the colony to be changed from proprietorship to a crown colony, he still had a hand in its government. This prominent American was now the spokesperson, looked on by London Whigs to explain the American positions in many situations. Originally sent just to argue the case for Pennsylvania's popular party, he became the representative for all sorts of issues in London. He was unable to prevent the Stamp Act, but he did testify in Parliament and part of the argument leading to its repeal. Still, Franklin was a British citizen, and that's why he was in London. And for most problems, he thought the King's Court was the place to resolve it. The Hutchison affair changed all that. In London, Franklin obtained private letters of Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson and Lieutenant Governor Andrew Oliver that proved they were encouraging London to crack down on the rights of Bostonians. Franklin sent them to America. There they escalated the tensions. But it got out that Franklin was the one that had sent the Hutchinson letters. So now in London, Franklin lost his political standing. He now appeared to the British to be a troublemaker. 
hoping for a peaceful solution with some of his Whig allies. He was systematically ridiculed and humiliated by Solicitor General Alexander Wedderburn before a tension-filled Privy Council meeting in January of 1774, soon after he returned to Philadelphia. And when he did, his opinion was solely for independence from Britain. He was done reconciling. At the time of the meeting in 1776, where most of the events we talk about occurred, you were looking at one of the most fully committed patriots. In 1756, when Franklin became a bit of a political boss in Pennsylvania, another gentleman would come in that assembly as well. One that might have been, in some accounts, the most important signer that you've never heard about. And we'll talk more about him later. But first, let's talk about four Pennsylvanians whose name appeared in the Declaration of Independence. They were fervent patrons, and for that reason, when those who could not sign the document left the Continental Service, they entered to replace them. Well, be it the struggle to protect the colony's frontier or the struggle of the Americans against the British king, cannon was needed. You needed cannon to hold defensive positions, to protect against enemy charges, and to protect against those marauding ships. For cannons, you needed cannonballs, and for that you needed iron. Thus, it's not surprising that one of the signers was a great iron maker. Born in Ireland and one of many immigrants to America from Northern Ireland, George Taylor came to America at age 20. One of the many illustrations that the signers, if they were rich men, weren't always so, is Taylor as well. Taylor was indentured. He arrived here as an indentured servant to a man named Samuel Savage, an ironmaster at Warwick Furnace in Coventry Forge. Taylor started as a laborer, but it's believed that when Savage discovered that he had a good degree of education and skill, he promoted him to bookkeeper of the Iron Forge. And when Savage passed away in 1742, Taylor married his widow and began running the business. When the Savage's son, Samuel III, reached legal age in 1752, the son assumed ownership of the mills as part of the will. So Taylor didn't get to keep that business, but he kept in the industry. He formed a partnership to lease the Durham Furnace in Upper Bucks County. This ironworks, which had been built in 1727, was started by a group of investors who were among Pennsylvania's wealthiest and most influential men, including William Allen, Chief Justice of Pennsylvania, founder of Allentown, and James Logan, who had worked for the Penn family. Taylor entered public life for the first time, serving as a Justice of the Peace in Bucks County. After the lease expired for the Durham Mill, he relocated to Easton, Pennsylvania. He obtained a tavern there called Easton House, and he became a Justice of the Peace in Northampton County, where Easton is. Eventually, he was elected to a seat on the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly from that area. Twelve years after his lease had expired on the Durham Furnace, Taylor was able to obtain another lease, this time from Joseph Galloway, who had helped out Ben Franklin in the pre-independence days and had just resigned as Speaker of the Assembly because he could not get a successful vote in the Continental Congress for his plan to avert a break with England. George Taylor's ironworking paid off for the Congress. He secured a contract with Pennsylvania's P Committee of Safety for cannon shot with a shipment of 258 round balls weighing from 18 to 30 pounds each, Durham Furnace became the first ironworks in Pennsylvania to supply munitions to the Continental Army. Now, here's something that would happen too often with congressmen today. Well, and maybe it might with a few members. 
Lancaster, Pennsylvania representative George Ross was so liked by his constituents that they gave him a gift in honor of his zeal for the good of his country. Resolved that the sum of 150 pounds out of the county stock be forthwith transmit to George Gross, one of the members of the assembly for this county and one of the delegates for this colony in Continental Congress, and that he be requested to accept the same as a testimony of his attendance to the public business. Even if he wouldn't take this money, it said, perhaps a gentle piece of plate, ornamented as he thinks proper, could remain with him as a testimony of the esteem this county has for him by reason of his patriotic conduct in the great struggle of American liberty. Such a testimony of respect and affection on the part of his constituents must have been pretty gratifying to Mr. Ross. Still, he declined accepting the present, offering his apology for so doing that he considered it the duty of every man to serve his country for its welfare, without expecting pecuniary rewards. Now, not to get in a whole debate about congressional salaries, but there is a, perhaps a lesson there for the representatives of today. Ross was an active and energetic member of the Pennsylvania legislature and a supporter of independence, and he served on a committee of defense for Pennsylvania in 1776. Thus, when certain members had to leave the Continental Congress because they had not voted for independence, and the rest of the body had, Mr. Ross was put on the Continental Congress, this is after the independence vote, but became one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, one thing to be said about these signers, they might have been replacement signers, but they still took the same responsibility, and they took on the danger of their sacred honor and their property, and perhaps their life, by signing the document. Another one in this category, though far younger than Ben Franklin, Scots-Irish signer James Smith would also get to the patriot business by way of militia service. He had been an iron master, a surveyor, and a real estate lawyer. Unlike Taylor, he was not successful in the iron business, and he became more successful as the, in the real estate law area. By that practice, he became widely known in the Pennsylvania frontier country near York by the 1770s. He was quite concerned about the widening rift between the colonists and the mother country. He attended a provincial assembly in 1774 and supported a boycott. He also organized a volunteer company of militia in York County, Pennsylvania. So many people joined. They elected Smith as captain. And with the increasing pressure by the British upon American trade with each injustice, more and more people joined this militia company in York. It soon grew to a battalion size, near a thousand persons, and was split up into companies. Smith was elected to the convention that started the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in January 1775. With an army behind him, he was hothead for a rebellion. If the British administration should determine by force to effect a submission to the late arbitrary acts of the British Parliament in such a situation, we hold it our indispensable duty to resist such force and at every hazard to defend the rights and liberties of America. Strong words, and not exactly the language every one of the colonists would choose, not even everyone who ended up being signers, many of whom this time hoped for some form of accommodation with the mother country. Thus, when there was a need for new delegates to the Pennsylvania delegation of the Continental Congress that would show up in time for the signing in August 1776, James Smith was among these. And one more of these replacement signers was among the most avid patriots. George Clymer was born in Maine, Pennsylvania, March 1739. He was orphaned when only a year old. 
He was apprenticed to his maternal aunt and uncle, Hannah and William Coleman, to prepare to become a merchant, which he did. And as a merchant, he also became a leader in the demonstrations in Philadelphia, resulting from the Tea Act and the Stamp Act. He became a member of the Philadelphia Committee of Safety in 1773 and was elected to the Continental Congress, 1776-1780. Didn't need to be convinced about independence from Britain. In addition to signing the Declaration of Independence, Clymer would demonstrate one more bit of evidence of his bravery and support for the cause. He attended several committees in the Continental Congress. He reviewed the army on behalf of Congress in the fall of 1776 and reported back. Thereafter, when Congress fled Philadelphia in the face of Henry Clinton's threatened occupation, George Clymer stayed in the city, along with some residents. Two other signers included George Walton and Robert Morris. After the Revolution, he would develop a prosperous Caribbean trade. Clymer would live on to be one of several signers that would sign the Declaration and the U.S. Constitution. Unfortunately, the next signer would not live to see that day. He would become, sadly, the first signer of the Declaration to pass away not even a year after signing the document. Log cabins are a known part of American lore. The builders of those cabins, in most cases, the ones that would have taught the settlers like the Lincolns of Kentucky to build those long wood cabins so they could be well-sheltered in the winter, were those thins brought in by the Swedish who settled near Philadelphia under the short-lived new Sweden colony of the 1600s, which was quickly occupied by the Dutch. John Morton, signer of the Declaration of Independence, was testament to the lasting influence of that short-lived colony and his nationality. Morton was born Ridley Township in Chester County, Pennsylvania. He was born in a log and stone house that still had a slot above the bed that you could poke out a rifle and shoot would-be raiders if need be testament to how his family was raised on what was then the frontier. He was a Finn, as was his wife. Morton was elected to the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly in 1756, the same year Ben Franklin rose to official control of Pennsylvania politics. The following year, he also was appointed Justice of the Peace, an office he held until 1764. He's also Sheriff of Chester County. Like many signers, he served as a delegate to the Stamp Act Congress in 1765 representing Pennsylvania. Morton was not one of the replacement signers I've been talking about, uh, those Pennsylvanians sent in for their zealousness when others were kicked out for voting against independence or left for that reason. He was in the original delegation. He was there in July 1776, and he had to make a vote, yay or nay. He cautiously helped move Pennsylvania towards independence, though he opposed the radical Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 that allowed all men, even those without property, to vote. There was no radical. When in June 1776, Congress began the debate, Pennsylvania delegation was split. Benjamin Franklin and James Wilson in favor of independence. John Dickinson, Robert Morris opposed. Two other members were opposed. Morton was apparently uncommitted officially until July 1st when he sided with Franklin and Wilson. Now, for this reason, and also because sadly John Morton was the first to die and couldn't tell much of his story, therefore... It is known in the accounts of the Declaration signers that Morton was the swing vote that turned independence for Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania thus for the nation. It's true and it's not true. It's no doubt flattering. And we'll get into next time. There are a lot of other factors in Pennsylvania's vote than just these men voting. 
a lot of factors controlling Pennsylvania politics. And there was at least three more swing votes that were not as obvious as Morton's. Still, yes, he did lean to independence at the right time, a time when the state was divided about whether to do some more talking with Britain or get to fighting. He deserves credit, even if the swing wasn't his alone. He'd already, though, moved towards this action before the vote. As Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, on one occasion in April 1776, he signed a resolution appointing a man as muster master of the forces for this province for the protection against hostile enterprises and for the defense of American liberty. So he was already starting to arm the colony. Now, signing as a speaker does not guarantee acceptance. We know that the speaker signs all bills, even when they might be personally against it. But if one highly disagreed in principle with something as big as that, you know, there are other methods to handle, or one could certainly resign the post or just not sign that resolution. So it does apply some acceptance. In 1775, there's a letter, too, he wrote to a London merchant. I hope time will manifest to the world that a steady preservation in the cause of freedom will triumph over the deep-laid schemes of tyranny, that Britain and America will again be united on the solid foundation of commerce and the Constitution. You have declared the New England people rebels, the other provinces aiders and abettors, this putting the halter about our necks. We may as well die by the sword as be hanged like rebels, and this has made the people desperate. Not exactly a hamlet on the Delaware, He seemed a little bit to be leaning towards the independence, and that's one year before. But in the same letter, he also expressed reservations, as many countrymen did. We are really preparing for the worst that can happen, viz. a civil war. He goes on to say, I sincerely wish a reconciliation. The contest is horrid, parents against children, and children against parents. The longer wound is left in the present state, the worse it will be to heal it at last. At the same time, supporting a strong defense of American liberty. In the end, July 1st, He joined the delegates Franklin and Wilson in voting for independence, and that made it happen. There are three votes, two abstentions, two no's, and three yeas. Unfortunately, he would live uh, not even a full year after the signing of the Declaration, incurring a terrible fever. He allegedly made a quote in the pages of history. Oh, it's one of those quotes that's apocryphal, and we won't know, and when history is practiced as strict science, it's hard to argue with. There's no proof that he said it, so should we really be repeating it? The first instances were only known about this quote in the 1900s, so it has all the hallmarks of apocryphal story, but it's likely to be partially true. Morton was encountering resistance from friends in the area he lived who didn't want such a strong independence movement, and he probably had to answer for it at some point or defend it with some of his friends. He purportedly said, Tell them that they will live to see the hour when they shall acknowledge it to have been the most glorious service that I ever rendered my country. Whether uttered by John Morton or not, of its truth that he did render a glorious service, there can be little doubt. I want to thank you for listening. In the next episode, more Pennsylvania. If you like this program, I also do a podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Also on iTunes, also on Stitcher. I do probably put a little bit more time into what is really the core podcast, so I do apologize. The frequency of these just can't be as much. There's a very uh, good program, not more than a few episodes back, on the Scots-Irish that I have done called The Silent Ulster Vote, talking about the Scots-Irish influence and their effect on American politics today. So if you like this program, you might like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. 
If you do like this program, please leave a comment on iTunes for us so that others may experience it as well. Thanks for listening.